Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined this week by Ken Katkin, who is now, or at least for this semester, a professor of law at University of Colorado. Ken, how is it in Colorado? Colorado is fantastic. It's, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sunny and beautiful out every day. There's virtually no mosquitoes here. Uh, it's, uh, the mountains are beautiful, and I, lo- I love being out here. Oh, I love mountains, too. And as a matter of fact, I, I have a soft spot in my uh, soul for not having mosquitoes, having been a recent Florida transplant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand that. I understand that. Well, Ken, it's always wonderful to have you. Uh, and I think one of the first things that we want to take a look at this week, and this has been a big revelation, and, th- and this might actually take a, a bit of time, is the Woodward book uh, that has come out, and then the Trump response to that. So really, I think there's kind of two stories going on here. One is the book itself and what it may or may not reveal about the Trump presidency. And I think the second thing that's happening here has been the response to the book, which has kind of brought us back to the question, uh, fake news, and what does that mean in reporting? And so I think we might want to start with that first question, which is, you know, the book itself uh, and what it's kind of doing. And it's a it's a, I know that you have actually uh, owned the book. I have only gotten to read excerpts of the book to this point, uh, yeah. but we've got some really fascinating quotes already coming out, right? So we've got Kelly calling Trump, quote, an idiot. We got Cohn calling him a professional liar. We got Mattis saying he's got the fifth or the sixth grader understanding of any issue. Uh, we've got uh, everybody calling his bedroom the devil's workshop. And so, I mean, we have some, yeah, you know, we, you know, he's sitting there and he's tweeting these things out early in the morning. And, and the appearance here is a, a staff that is trying, you have a White House that is trying to basically hold the line against an incompetent buffoon. That's, that, I, th- I think that seems to be, at least in the po- points that I've read, uh, the overall take on this. So you've read a little bit more about it. What do you think about the book itself and what it might suggest about the presidency? And then we'll kind of take that second question in a minute. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, you know, all the things that you said, that, that, that's sort of the, the big, um, uh, uh, that, that's the big takeaway. But I, I, you know, a lot of that stuff had been previously reported anyhow. I mean, I think the thing that the Woodward book does is it, it gives more credibility to those kind of reports because the, you know, in the past you'd have, I think several of the quotes you just said had been previously reported in newspapers before the Woodward book came out, but the, but the, the White House and the, and the people alleged to have said them would always deny them. And so you ended up having people looking at that, I think, through a largely partisan lens where people who didn't like Trump credited those kind of reports and people who liked Trump, you know, thought of all that as fake news. And uh, I think because of Woodward's um, uh, reputation and his experience and the reporting techniques that he uses, which in a way are controversial because he, he usually doesn't attribute in the, in the books who's giving him most of the quotes. Um, but what he does do is he, he says um, that he's corroborated them all with multiple sources and so he's really putting his own credibility on the line there. Do you believe that he's corroborated all this from multiple sources? But I think because of the track record that he's established, people do tend to believe that. So I think the significance of it mainly is with those independent voters who weren't sure, 
you know, if they believed those kind of reports before, I think more of them are coming to believe them now. Well, and I think another interesting part about this is is that you can think of Trump as not being a great president, but I, I think that this kind of paints a picture of a man who. I mean, you're you're making some pretty bold claims when you're talking about trying to kind of like pull things off the president's desk when you're talking yep. about him being a fifth grader. So, you know, once you kind of get beyond that question of, you know, how much credence do we give to him? These are pretty, I mean, I'm, I'm a presidential scholar. And for me, these seem like really, really big claims. You know, you, you don't have these kinds of claims about previous presidents even in some cases, from your your worst enemies. Uh, and in this case, theoretically, this is coming from inside the White House itself. Uh, what do you I mean? Do you think this paints yeah. a different kind of picture for the unique nature of the Trump presidency? <laughs> well, I guess there were claims like that about Woodrow Wilson as well, right? That he had uh, basically lost his mental capacity in the final year or two of his presidency. Was a result that, uh, of a, a disease. Yes. Yeah. Disease, yeah. His wife so had was, kind of taken over. Yeah. Yeah, so that was that was slightly precedented. But um, the, the the other thing, though, I mean, I think the thing about taking papers off his desk, uh, you know, I, I hate to run to Trump's defense here, but I I, I feel like um, that might not be as unusual as it as it was made to sound in by Woodward or in the portrayals, because I think what you usually have in prior White Houses is um, more of a functioning policy flow system, so that um, say the chief of staff is actually having a lot more control over what gets onto the president's desk uh, in the first place. And, and so here, you know, there's, um, there's sort of a chaotic policy flow, and there's a lot of people who have access to putting things on Trump's desk, and they can make end runs around the chief of staff. And so at least the idea there that then, you know, the chief of staff or someone who's authorized by the chief of staff um, would go in and steal stuff off his desk, it sounds very dramatic, but it may be functionally equivalent to just having never let the thing get onto his desk to begin with which is a little bit more of a feature of many administrations. I think. Now, I, that, I definitely agree with you on that point. What I think is kind of interesting, though, is what you were kind of calling that the, the chaotic management style. You know, mm -hmm. again, taking a look at the turnover rate that we have in the White House. And I think that at least the pieces that I have read seem to indicate that there is a consistency of chaos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And certainly he, um, he has this kind of uh, style where, you know, on any given day, um, people are, it's, it's like a, uh, you've got all these courtiers sort of praying for his favor and whoever's in his favor that day could sort of walk in and put anything on his desk. And it doesn't, um, I think that's very unusual because I think that usually everything's properly vetted before it gets to the president's desk. And lots of people have had to sign off on things before they get to the president's desk. So or, and it, yeah. Oh, I, I was going to say, just at a minimum, at least there is an established procedure by which there's a uh, there's a group of people where that happens, right? And I think that changes president to president. But this kind of shifting nature of it all the time, I agree with you. I think is highly unusual. Yeah. So I mean, the things that we're reading are, are dramatically being stolen off of his desk. Are I think equivalent to like in any other administration, those things would never have been able to get to his desk. So it's uh yeah. So that that uh, the other thing though, maybe uh. You know, maybe one sort of partisan uh, difference you and I might have, although maybe you won't, I don't know, is um, it, it seems to me that um, what, what characterized uh, by these, um, by, the, by the White House of senior staff as sort of, um, you know, keeping him from uh, doing, doing crazy things, um, I, I certainly do think there's an element of that. But I think a, a different element of this um, 
from my perspective is uh, that he, in the primaries, actually ran as a candidate who wasn't um, a conservative, wasn't yoked to the traditional conservative movement. Um, and, and, and I think that helped him get elected. That certainly helped him in the general election where he got a fair amount of Democratic crossover votes, particularly in the, in the Midwest, that people saw kind of policy differences between Trump and, say, someone like a Ted Cruz or something like that. But I, but I think that um, a lot of the people um, that wound up uh, in, working um, in his staff, his senior staff or in his administration are sort of movement conservatives who are there you know, kind of cynically taking advantage of him, you know, just the fact that he was elected and that he doesn't know what he's doing to advance the very conservative agenda that they would have liked to advance. But one of their, um, you know, one of their candidates didn't win the primary, you know, and so so that has an undemocratic feel to me. It's not I don't really look at these heroes that are um, rescuing uh, the country from from Trump's uh, erraticism. I also look at it as um, like, well, they found uh, we've got this guy, Bozo the Clown, who can get elected. We don't have anyone who openly espouses our agenda who can get elected, so we'll just, um, you know, support him and then just try to ramp through our agenda. You know, you're, uh, I don't entirely disagree with you there, Ken. As a matter of fact, one of the things that probably marks me a little bit different than many of my uh, fellow kind of conservative libertarians is the fact that I've been deeply, deeply disappointed in the number of individuals who were willing to work with the Trump administration, right? I, I think in an ideal world, after Trump wins the election, you say, look, there was a problem. Uh, we need to come back from this. Uh, you know, he's won the Republican nomination, but that doesn't make him a Republican. That doesn't make him conservative. And it certainly doesn't make him a libertarian. And that you simply distance yourself from it. You allow him to do what he's going to do. Um, allow that to fail if you believe that's going to fail, which I, I think many of us did. Uh, and and, and if it, where it succeeds, let it succeed. And then to come back and try to win in that wake as opposed to, I think, working with a a more than flawed presidency. And and so on, on that front, I agree, but I guess I even maybe agree in a different way that I, I was disappointed with the individuals who worked with him in the first place. And that'll actually come later when we talk about Cruz too. But a, a second kind of question that is here about the book has been the response to the book, which I think has also been fascinating. I don't know how much you've, you've kept up with this, Ken. You know, obviously the president's Twitter account has been a buzz uh, about this. He is called, quote, uh, Bob is a liar, a dim operative prior to the midterms. His book is a quote, a scam. I don't talk the way I'm quoted. If I did, I would not have been uh, been elected president. These quotes were made up. And Woodward's book is a joke. So he's had a bunch of hits. And then fascinatingly tied around this, we have seen uh, a number of what you would call the uh, alternative right sites kind of popping up back up in the lexicon, um, like Proud Patriots, where they've been uh, manipulating quotes from Woodward to say that he he's admitting to lying in the book. And this has been flying around um, and retreated uh, briefly by the president. Um, so what do you think this says about this ongoing question? You were kind of alluding to it earlier, a fake news. I mean, is this just another book where those who support Trump are going to say, yeah, it's all made up because it's fake? Uh, or do you think this has a, a different kind of chance because it comes from a different kind of source of maybe making a midterm or a sway impact on elections? 
Yeah, I think it'll have an impact on the election, but I, I think that the partisans on both sides won't be very affected by it. I think partisan Democrats, probably including me, were already thinking all this stuff even before the Woodward book said it. And I think partisan Republicans um, still aren't going to believe the Woodward book. But I do think there is, uh, you know, the elections, um, this is a closely divided electorate. Elections are going to be decided by people who are neither partisan Democrats nor partisan Republicans. And uh, I think that this will definitely have an impact because the, the stature and credibility of, of the source, Bob, Bob Woodward, I think it, it, it um, is making people who never really knew what to believe um, a little bit more inclined to believe this, this kind of reporting. Well, you know, on this note, the other big item that came out last weekend uh, that we haven't been able to deal with on the show yet was the anonymous New York Times op-ed. And I know that we've both been really interested in this one. It's a fascinating uh, op-ed. Uh, and I highly recommend, um, my guess is if you're a listener of The Politics Guys, you've probably already listened to it, <laughs> uh, or listened to it, read it. Uh, but if you haven't, I really do highly recommend that you take a look at it because it's fascinating on a number of levels. Um, and I think the overarching uh, take from the piece, I've got some quotes here we might talk about a little bit more, but the overarching take from the piece is basically, listen, don't worry that the president is having anti-democratic uh, leanings. We've got you, <laughs> American public, and we're going to make sure only the good stuff happens. <laughs> so what do you think, not just about that mindset, Ken, but also about, I mean, publishing it with the New York Times is a fascinating step. So he the, the, he or she thinks this is a big enough deal that they need to say, look, it might be obvious that things are anti-democratic, but we're here. We're propping it up. We're making it work. And don't worry, the best things are still happening. What do you, what do you think about the op-ed in general and that kind of takeaway from the op-ed? Yeah, well, I don't play, I do not blame the Times for publishing it because I do think it's newsworthy that somebody if they know that it's a real top administration official who had these things to say, um, I think it's newsworthy. I, I probably would have published it if I was at the New York Times too. But but nonetheless, um, I have an incredibly you know negative view of the author. I, I think it's a terrible thing that the author did. Um, you know, I, I I think that the 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 idea that the author is basically saying, um, you know, trying to say to the conservative movement. Um, you know, don't worry, even though Trump was not elected on the conservative platform, we're still advancing the conservative agenda undemocratically, um, uh, I think is terrible. And then also the idea that the uh, author is trying to say to um, uh, to, to, to maybe centrists or, or, or Democrats, um, you know, uh, everything's fine, really, you know, and so, you know, you can you can you can not be alarmed. Um, well, I mean, these people have whoever this author is, they haven't actually worked against what I would see as the very worst excesses of the Trump administration, things like the family separations or the, the travel ban or the, the support for neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups or the, the demonization of the press as the enemy of the people. You know, you're talking about, um, you know, some administration official who says, yeah, I'm fine with all that stuff, uh, but, I, but I'm, uh, you know, w when it comes to free trade, even though Trump openly ran on a platform against free trade, um, I'm working in his administration. I'm going to work to undermine that. And so you should be reassured. Um, it seems to me to, to, to lack uh, political morality in, in all respects, both in terms of judgment about what are the important things to be working against, 
and um, really that it's, it's fundamentally anti-democratic and dishonest, I think. Well, the other thing that is fascinating to me, and the more times I've read the piece, the more it kind of uh, strikes out at me, is the author says, quote, they want the administration to succeed, end quote. But then they go on to worry, quote, to preserve our democratic institutions that they have to stop, quote, his misguided impulses and the, quote, president's amorality and, quote, his anti-democraticness. Yeah. <laughs> and what and for me, what I want to say, and this goes back to what I, w- I was mentioning in a minute ago, if you honestly believe that the president of the United States is being anti-democratic and that he is attempting to bring down the democratic institutions. Why, in heaven's name, are you still working in his White yeah. House? I don't. Of course. Yeah. I, I, I mean, this would be like basically. I mean, this might sound extreme, but I, I think at some point you get to this point to say, "Well, look, uh, I, I either have to. I need to be in Hitler's inner circle because that way I can save him from his worst impulses from the German people." <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, I think I mean that obviously that's a, a loaded analogy, but it's not a completely unfair analogy. And I and I yeah, the, 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 somebody like this could actually do more um, more good uh, if if they really believed what they're saying. If they quit the job, came out publicly, went on all the news shows in their own name, and said all this stuff. Exactly. Um, but but yeah, and and also the the idea that um, they want the administration to succeed, I find that to be very disingenuous because what they really mean is they want their agenda to succeed no matter whether or not that's actually Trump's agenda. And and so Trump ran as Republican and you've got, you know, more traditional some more some more traditional Republicans in this administration. And what they're really saying is we're going to make sure we advance our agenda. And to the extent that that varies with um Trump what Trump's stated agenda was, we're going to frustrate his ability to um implement his stated agenda uh and, and make sure we stick with the more traditional Republican agenda. And and, you know, who voted for them? You know, I, I don't see where they get any stature or legitimacy to do that. Well, and, it, you know, the other thing that as I've read it and reread it, that also fascinates me is this line where the author says, this isn't the work of the so-called deep state. It's the work of the steady state. And I think the only reason you can include this in here is because you were obviously trying to poke at the president of the United States right. because you know that he thinks this. So you're, I mean, by saying this, you are alleviating the president's fears. You are for some reason poking at those fears. And that is fascinating. I mean, you could just have taken that line out, right? What yeah. the only purpose I can see in that is that you're trying to, to basically say to the president, it really is the deep state. See, here I am. And I don't, that, it's a, I don't know. It's, it's just a fascinating that they have those kinds of lines in there. And I don't know if that, if that struck you as well, Ken, or if you have thoughts about that or what? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point, Trey, because it's, it's inconsistent with the stated theme of the, of the op-ed, right? The, the sort of stated theme of the op-ed is, you know, we're, we're quietly making sure he doesn't do anything terrible. But then by sort of putting that line in there, it, it, it will very much, um, you know, take away any ability of whoever wrote it do anything quietly like that right because the now now trump is kind of provoked and he's and he's you know being told well you've got your own political appointees who are actually working to undermine you and so you know you've got to you know he's he's going to want to be twice as vigilant about that now 
And so whatever whatever benefit there may have been, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm doubting whether there was any benefit, but whatever benefit the author is claiming there was by that author working to undermine some of the president's worst excesses, that one sentence that you just quoted now makes it impossible for the author to continue to do that. Exactly. And, you know, this is just a kind of a throwaway. I don't think I have much to say about it. But I, did you notice that the author uses the tagline for Reason magazine when he sums up conservatism, which I found fascinating, given that Reason is the anti it's I mean, that's the libertarian magazine in the yeah, country, yeah, like what free markets, free, free minds. minds and free markets. And I thought, yeah. when is the when has the conservatives ever been about free minds? Um, but anyway, be that as it may, I mean, I'm yeah. a libertarian. And, I know my my bias is coming out. Here. And, well, and the examples that are given, it's all free trade examples. But that's I find that very telling because uh, the one you know I've said it already, but the one thing that Trump openly ran on, where he was extremely opposed to traditional Republican and conservative ideas, was his trade agenda. So if that's the thing that the author wants to undermine, and I think, you know, that line you've quoted again really is very ideological and shows that that's the author's um, primary agenda there, as do most of the examples in the, in the op-ed, then, then I think that can only be seen as, a, as, as utterly anti-democratic, at least as anti-democratic as uh, anything that the author is really accusing President Trump of. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating take. And, and when you take it together with the book, it just... It um it paints an unfortunate picture, regardless of your political uh, yes, position. Yes, yeah. So kind of moving away from the president, which I think, you know, we've probably spent enough time on that for now uh, and the books and the New York op-ed. Uh, we want to move now to Ted Cruz's uh, surprisingly, I would say for some surprisingly, I was I'm not as shocked about this. Uh, the tight race that Ted Cruz is having in Texas. As a matter of fact, as of this morning, uh, the Real Clear Politics average was th- uh, point plus 3.2 in favor of Cruz. Two of the three most recent polls uh, have him positive outside the margin of error and one still have him in the margin of error. And I don't think this is where uh, Cruz himself was hoping to be. Cruz, obviously, and I mean, not quite shockingly, argues, quote, with the election of Donald Trump, the far left has lost their minds. Uh, The extreme left, they are energized, they're angry, and they have a lot of hatred for President Trump. And so I think that, you know, Cruz is, is obviously, and for important political reasons, attempting to pin this on the left. I'm not actually as shocked about this, and I'm curious what you think about this take, Ken. I think that what Cruz is actually fearing getting a backlash over is the way that he handled the election with Donald Trump. I think had he just either stayed anti-Donald Trump or had gone all in with two feet with Donald Trump, that he would be in a much better position than he is today. I think that that whole business with being wish-washy has hurt him with his base and hurt him with his turnout. I think he would have been much better off. In matter of fact, in my opinion, I think he would be a much more electable a candidate right now had he simply stuck with his president, then candidate Trump is not fit for office and he never had that whole fiasco uh, with the so-called quote-unquote endorsement speech that he pulls out of effectively at the end. What do you think about all that, Ken? Yeah, I think you could be right, although there's a lot of moving parts here, right? So um, I think the, the true Trump supporters um, – are, you know, they didn't like that about Cruz, that he sometimes was against Trump, sometimes for Trump. Um, but on the other hand, I don't know that they have anywhere to go. The true Trump supporters are not going to vote for uh, O'Rourke, I don't think, right? So but they I might stay they, home. They might stay home, right? So that's, yeah, that's a piece of it. 
I think another piece of it is um, the, um, the, the immigration politics of the Trump administration is, is a big issue in Texas. It's polarizing on both sides. And I think you have, um, you know, the, the, uh, the Latino voters are generally voting in most elections in, in lower numbers than, than, than other communities. And so I, I, I do think to the extent that that vote is energized a little bit um, by Trump's immigration policies, that's going to inherently um, close close the gap. Texas is still a Republican state, but if more if more Latinos would vote, then that's going to push it towards being a, a more democratic state. And I, I feel like um, that may be happening now. Um, so it's it's hard for me to it's hard for me to tease out you know how much this represents um, demographic trends and uh, and issues versus how much it, it represents um, in individual the individual candidates. And Cruz was never a very likable guy, and I think some of his some of the other Republican senators were recently quoted as saying that, right? That we, you know we need more likable candidates, maybe or something like that. And I think that that's an issue too. But yeah, I, I think he did mishandle what what his attitude towards Trump was going to be during the 2016 campaign. He did seem to flip flop a lot on that in a way that left nobody very happy. Um, but I I don't know. I mean, I don't know that that causes Republican voters to if they're if they're partisan Republicans. I think they want the Republicans to keep the Senate no matter what. So I'm not sure I have the image in my head of who's the voter, who's the Republican voter who actually stays home because of this, I guess. Yeah, and, and you bring up two interesting questions, one of which I've, uh, I've looked at a little bit, because you, know, you talk about rightfully that you have the increasing Latino population. But when you take a look uh, at the studies currently on Latino turnout rates, they are actually going down a little bit. Uh, and as a matter of fact, in places like Florida, for example, which again, I'm, I'm a little even more familiar with because of uh, having lived there, you know, there was a question about how is that going to affect local races? And the answer was it really hasn't yet impacted them because the increase in the Latino population is offset by this minor decrease in turnout in elections among that group. So I'm not sure if that uh, population shift is yet enough to explain the the cruise shift. Now, that, that may be very bad news for Republicans, right? Because if if I'm right in that assertion, that means there's a bunch of potentially untapped voters, and if more of them show up, then you have more easy potential wins in what used to be safer, uh, safer states and safer seats. Uh, but you know, when you on the second part of that, where you're talking about, you know, who's going to stay home? Well, I actually can see there being a number of Republicans now staying home because one of the things that you need is energized voters who are actually going to be willing to show up at the poll. And I think one of the areas where Republicans generally outweigh Democrats is on that. I mean, it's you don't have to have worked on many campaigns to know about every Republican prays for rain on election day. <laughs> right, right, right. And so I think what you might be, I think what you might be seeing here is enough apathy towards Cruz. It's not that they don't want a Republican to win, but apathy towards Cruz, especially when you live in a state where you think, eh, they're going to win anyway, whatever. I think that that apathy is part of what's hurting him significantly and bringing that, that overall number down. Now, how much of the variability is that particular question? I think that's up for up for debate. Uh, but no, I think you're right. I mean, in the long term, that question about uh, Latino voters is a fascinating one. But I don't think it's yet uh, um, 
changing those voting patterns just because of the decrease in, in turnout that we're seeing among that population. Yeah, you're, you're probably right about that. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, Cruz, although he obviously thought he'd have a much bigger margin now than he does, I mean, he's still ahead. Uh, it, it's likely that he's going to get reelected. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it, Texas, you know, I mean, a lot of people have said Texas will be a blue state in 20 years or something. So, the you know, the question, just based on demographics, so the, the I guess the, the in any individual election, the question is probably going to come down to, to whether there's unusual turnout from one side or the other in that election. Yeah, and where you are at that demographic change. And, and I think that's one of the things, you know, that it's difficult when you're when you're studying elections and you're looking at electoral outcomes is just like any slow moving sets of trends, you, you know, no singular election is generally the tipping point, right? It's this slow accumulation of elections where you see these patterns change over time. And so when you say, hey, I see this change coming and you're right, it changes don't mean next elections. <laughs> you right, know, right. Th that variability increase changes, you know, maybe a percentage point. But, you know, as you get to this where you're talking about, you know, Cruz, I mean, he would I'm, I'm sure that he thought he'd be further ahead than three. Um, it doesn't take too many more movements to start you know, having a different kind of election. But anyway, uh, on a bigger scale, another big issue has been the NAFTA issue. So what has happened so far, listeners, we've talked about this a little bit before, but there's been some more recent developments. Uh, and that is, is that the United States and Mexico have reached a preliminary bilateral deal to continue NAFTA, which again has been in place since 1994, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, after being signed by President Clinton. Uh, but Canada has is still out there and they need to have an agreement by the end of the month because that's going to mark the point of time where once you go through all the other uh, notification processes that it needs to be done in time, right? So we've talked about that. We won't continue to talk about that. What it appears to be right now, uh, the, the big tipping points, Ken, and I'm curious what you think about this, is the United States wants access to Canada's dairy market. Uh, Canada has, has a pretty managed system. It's actually called a supply management system. And that basically means, listeners, that government has strict regulations on how much dairy products can be produced, and then they place really high tariffs and quotas on those items being shipped into the country. Now, nobody had originally been upset about this, but originally the United States could ship in, without those tariffs and quotas, uh, ultra-filtered milk, which is basically stuff to make other dairy products. So you don't eat this stuff, uh, but you use it to make other things. That got changed in 2016, and this appears to be uh, the United States and specifically Donald, President Donald Trump's biggest beef. Uh, and then on the Canadian side, they don't want any changes to Chapter 19 of NAFTA, which is the way that dispute resolutions are handled. And so far right now, it does not look like, at least from my opinion, I've looked at a lot, I've watched a lot of treaties uh, play out. It doesn't look like this is going to make the deadline. So what do you think about kind of these last hangups? Are there other issues? And do you think that they make the deadline or not? And if they don't, is this effectively the end of NAFTA? What do you think, Ken? Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm a little, I, I'm almost hesitant to say what I think because I, I feel like all the reporting I've been reading is missing some very big points here uh, in terms of the legal context for all this. Right? NAFTA is is a statute. It's a statute that's been enacted by Congress. It it can only be changed by Congress. And so, you know, in sort of focusing on all these day to day machinations of, um, 
these uh, uh, negotiations or, or Trump's announcements, you know, I, I feel like some people might be losing the forest for the trees. And, and, you know, most of the media that's been covering it, I think I'd say that about because NAFTA is not going to change. It's not going to go away. Um, Trump can negotiate whatever he wants. He can, you know, he can announce whatever he wants. But there's a there's a, a um, under the NAFTA statute, there's a 90 day congressional review process if he wants a change. And they don't have to accept his change. When we're talking about 90 days now, um, we're talking about this means the next Congress, not the current Congress. Um, I think it's it's very likely that the Democrats will have the House and they have no particular reason to, to go, go along with Trump on any of this stuff. Um, and even if they don't, um, uh, changing a statute like NAFTA should be filibusterable in the Senate. So whether the Democrats have the majority or are still in the minority, they're certainly going to have a minority large enough to filibuster. Um, so, you know, without bipartisan agreement in the U.S. Congress, um, none of these changes are going to happen. And if we're if we're talking about excluding Canada um, or, or, or trying to force something on Canada that they won't agree to, um, I, I just don't see I don't see bipartisan agreement to do that really happening. Now, that's an interesting point, And you're absolutely right. But don't you think that there are enough Democrats in Congress, specifically the Senate, who would like to see NAFTA taken apart anyway, that they wouldn't might be willing to get on board uh, with this, not because they particularly care about Donald Trump's deal, but about a chance to uh, change some international trade policy that they've seen as a failure since 1994. Yeah, I mean, that I think is, I, I think you really put your finger on why uh, Trump is doing this, because I think he thinks it'll be a wedge issue for Democrats, that it's going to be divisive within the Democrats. But but I think he, as, as he sometimes does, you know, he's overplayed his hand here because, you know, even though, you know, the Bernie Sanders or Sherrod Brown wing of the Democratic Party, Elizabeth Warren, you know, people like that um, have been very critical of trade and might might like to see um, some, uh, um, uh, you know, um, relaxation of, of current free trade arrangements, make trade a little bit um, more encumbered. Um, I think even even those those senators, uh, they, what they don't want to do is is um, you know insult uh, our best allies like Canada, right? And and so the way the way that Trump has has done this really sort of just picking a fight with Justin Trudeau, just you know just because that might play to some parts of his base in in a very in, you know doing it in a very insulting and disrespectful way. Um, I, I don't think that um, the Elizabeth Warrens and Bernie Sanderses and and Sherrod uh, Browns are going to go along with that. I think they'd much rather um, send a message to Trump that he should engage in 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 ordinary diplomacy and not in just kind of uh, picking fights with our our friends who are our um, our weaker friends. I think the the political context for this becomes more important than the actual uh, trade trade deals um, because of the way that, that Trump has pursued all this. You know, and that's a that's an excellent point. And I and myself am conflicted about. You know, do they do they do they score the political points by not giving him this particular win, or do they take the policy points? And I don't know. It's it's a difficult one, especially when you're facing uh, two more years of a presidency, and it would be in some ways a potential win to say, hey, you know, we flipped this script on Trump, and now we've we've blown up NAFTA the way we've always wanted to. But you're right that has its own uh, consequences, especially given the way that this has. The way that the White House has engaged in this renegotiation or this new negotiation, however you want to think about that. Yeah, okay, okay, I can add one more thing, too. I think yes, Pelosi, 
Pelosi already said basically what I just said. So I saw it reported in the New York Times just um, yesterday uh, that, that Nancy Pelosi warned the Trump administration that NAFTA should be maintained as a trilateral pact between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. Now, I know, uh, you know there's, there are certainly Democratic members of Congress further to the left than Nancy Pelosi, but I think Pelosi is relatively far to the left. And, and if she's saying that, um, I think you can basically take it. That's where most Democrats are going to be. Now, I, the one thing that I would note a little bit different is, is that Nancy Pelosi is a, is, is a House member. And I, I think that the views between the House and the Senate, even within the similar parties, can be different. So I think you're right about the House. Uh, but at the, as it stands right now, Republicans don't need the House. The question, I think, is about the Senate. No, they need the, They actually need the House because NAFTA is not a treaty; it's a statute. Really? But yeah, hmm. yeah, it's not. It's not a treaty. It's it's a it's a U.S. statute that's been enacted by Congress. But that would only come into effect, of course, if Democrats take the House. Is what I'm suggesting, though. Yeah, yeah, I, I think Democrats will definitely take the House. Like, right, 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 right. Yeah. Uh, so you either yes, yes, okay. We're I think we're on the same page on that. I was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> The difference was where we think, yeah, I think that's going to be a little bit closer. As a matter of fact, we have purposely, uh, listeners have been, and they're dying to get us talking about our, you know, who's going to win or lose. But we have been kind of holding off until we get a little bit closer to actual election season. It was one of the one of the things we've been talking about in a couple of shows ago. But I know we have just enough time for one more issue. And I think that one more issue is undoubtedly... Manafort and his plea deal. And Ken, I know that you have a really unique uh, and I think a really insightful uh, speculative t- take on this. So why don't you share that with us? Yeah, so we were talking about this earlier, Trey, and um, I guess I think that I take it with, I, that, you know, the, of course the news has reported correctly that Manafort has signed a, a, a cooperation deal as part of his, his plea agreement and that the cooperation deal Commits him to very uh, complete cooperation with the uh, with the um, special counsel's office, um, including that he's supposed to um, have to answer any question they want, have to show up at any meeting they call him for, isn't necessarily allowed to bring his lawyers to those meetings, um, and even you know I think there's a provision of it. Although I can't imagine this would really happen, where he's even agreed to participate in undercover uh, operations uh, on their on their behalf, and so it looks pretty like much like a complete cooperation agreement. But my thought is that um, even though that's what he signed and that's what he agreed to, um, we really don't know uh, how sincere he is about carrying that out, because I think he would have incentives uh, to, to, to make that agreement um, no matter whether or not he was making it in good faith. Right? It may be that he made it in good faith, and I'm certainly not ruling that out. And it may, it may be that he's, he's planning to, to fully cooperate as he's agreed to. Um, but I think there's some reason to suspect that, there, that, that that's not a done deal. Uh, and that, um, you know, we do know that George Papadopoulos signed a similar agreement um, uh, over a year ago already now, actually, and uh, and then did not honor it, right, that he did not cooperate at all. And when it came time um, for him to be sentenced uh, on the on the minor charge that he pled guilty to, um, the, 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 the special counsel's office went in front of the judge and said Papadopoulos did not cooperate. And we don't want to give him any benefit of the doubt. And we're asking you to throw the book at him. Um, and that judge didn't throw the book at him. He gave him only two weeks. So Papadopoulos actually got away with signing a cooperation agreement and not honoring it and probably came out better for having pursued that course than any other course he could have pursued. Um, 
And I, so I think um, that Manafort may see that. Now, I think a judge would be a little more likely to throw the book at Manafort um, than, at, than, than at Papadopoulos. And Manafort's already been convicted on enough counts that I think, you know, depending on how the sentencing guidelines are applied, he's probably facing seven or eight years in prison already, just based on the counts that he's already been convicted of. So, but in his situation, I think what he benefits, the reason he would benefit by agreeing to cooperate, even if he's not planning to cooperate, is uh, first of all, it saves him the financial expense of defending another trial, right? It would cost him, you know, at least $100,000 or more um, just to pay lawyers and, and defend the trial. Second of all, it prevents um, public uh, it prevents public disclosure of a lot of facts, which would happen if, if a trial is actually starting in the next couple of weeks. Then right now, before the election, you know, people would, that trial would be taking place. Things would be coming out that would presumably be harmful to President Trump, um, and uh, um, and and so that would that would not be in, in Trump's interest. Um, and so I think if it, by not having the trial, Manafort saves himself money, he saves Trump uh, embarrassment. And if he never cooperates, and the end game is that a, a year from now, uh, um, the special counsel comes in front of the judge and says Manafort never cooperated, and you should throw the book at him. Um, I think that actually creates a signal to to Trump that maybe he'll give a pardon to Manafort because he, you know, he doesn't like flippers. He likes the loyalists who stick by him. And if uh, and and that that may be that may be more beneficial to Manafort than anything else because that could even get him out of serving. The, uh, the the sentence that um, on the charges that he's already been convicted of. So that's sort of how I'm thinking about his incentives here. I think, you know, there's no certainties, but I think there, the paths that he can pursue by trying to um, by trying to pretend he's going to cooperate for about a year and then just never really doing it. Um, I think that the the, the 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 end games to that path are at least as desirable for him as the end games for any other path. No, and I think that was a really interesting take. It's not one that I had. Uh, personally thought about, uh, but it's it's certainly plausible, um, and I think that's a that's a fascinating one. Well, listeners, I think we have we have actually wrapped up the show. And Ken, thank you again for joining me. If you want to hear more from Ken and me, I've got good news for you. You can if you're a supporter of the Politics guys, you get the supporters exclusive show, which we're going to be filming in just a couple of minutes. Uh, this week, we're going to be taking a look at Puerto Rico. We're going to be taking a look at the books we've been reading. And trust me, you want to know about some of the books that Ken's got his hands on because even I couldn't get my hands on them. Uh, so I'm interested in that myself. So that's it. Thanks. I hope that you guys liked what you've heard. Listeners, you can head to politicsguys.com slash support or head to politicsguys.com and click on the support link uh, and subscribe. And that will get you access to the supporters exclusive show. And we just want to thank you in advance if you are a supporter, because that's what makes this possible. And we really love doing this for you. So please, if you can't uh, uh, support, we ask if you would subscribe to our show on iTunes, sharing those episodes with your friends and family on social media are really big for us and rate us on iTunes. Nothing helps us more than putting us higher in those ranks. And if you can ask your friends and family to do the same thing for us, that would be amazing. As always, you can get a hold of us at mail at politicsguys.com or on our social media sites at facebook.com slash politicsguys page. That's facebook.com slash politics guys page or on twitter at 
politics guys. And then as one final note, we are asking about a change in the format of the show. So when you're reaching out to us, if you would please let us know what you would think if we did a slightly longer Saturday show where we also addressed your questions to the politics guys. In other words, what if we took that Ask the Politics Guys Wednesday show and put it on the weekend with this show? It would make the show a little bit longer, uh, but it might get to more of the things that you're interested in. So when you reach out to us at uh, mail at politicsguys.com or Facebook Politics Guys page or at Politics Guys on Twitter, Respond to that. Would you like that longer show or do you like it broken up into two? We want to do what you, the listeners, like the most. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. This episode was produced by Trey Orndorff. We'll have a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us then.